Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, uh, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, What are Biosimilars? Understanding their role in cancer treatments, current and future perspectives. It's a wonderful program, and it's one that we've offered, uh, as Dr. Gala was reminding me, about three times now. Um, it's an important topic, and uh, I even learned a lot on this program. Um, today's uh, program is, uh, is supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen and the Diapolis Fund, and we thank them for their support. Um, and today's program actually has a lot of people on it. We have over 200 participants. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants on today's call from Bahrain, Canada, India, New Zealand, Switzerland, Taiwan, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the call today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawa. Dr. Grawa is a medical oncologist, professor of medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. Dr. Grawa will be addressing an overview and definition of biosimilars, the difference between biosimilars and generic drugs, how biosimilars work and their use, manufacturing and safety issues, examples of biosimilars, and implications in managing the cost of cancer treatments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawa. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. It's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to participate with all of you in this program and to be able to introduce the concept of biosimilars. This is a relatively new term and is worthy of discussion. Before biological therapies, most treatments were based on chemical rather than biological therapies, and this made sense. Biologically based therapies have been very much in the forefront of our awareness now that the COVID-19 pandemic is upon us. All of us are in great hope of an effective vaccine against this virus to be available in the new future. When vaccines against COVID-9 become available, they will be biological therapies generated from and using biological techniques. But first, for all of us, chemical reactions are important and are occurring within us constantly. Examples of chemical reactions in people are found in digestion and the metabolizing or processing of food and breathing with the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide as well as the opening of the bronchial and breathing tubes in the lungs, in the use of protein to build up muscle, in the storage of glucose as a source of energy and reactions in the brain, in the re regulation of the heart and the function of the immune system, protecting us from many illnesses, in the production and renewal of cells that we're all made of, and innumerable other chemical reactions. And of course, biochemistry is the chemistry of life. Knowledge of these reactions in the everyday functioning of the human body is the basis of physiology. And this is what leads to treatment or therapeutics when the functioning is not quite right. And this knowledge leads to the development of agents or drugs to try to correct abnormal functioning when illness occurs. We do best when we understand how normal functioning occurs, what goes wrong with important pathways when we have illness, and how we can correct or enhance proper functioning. And this is true in cancer treatment and in supportive care in people with cancer as well. So where do effective drugs or treatments come from? Often medicines can be synthesized or constructed in the laboratory because they are chemicals. Pharmacologists and medicinal chemists are able to produce many medicines in special laboratories to make large amounts of these agents and to do so under the safest and most sterile conditions. 
These are agents that can be totally manufactured or synthesized in the laboratory, and this is how many chemical medicines are made. As we have learned more about illness and treatment, often the structures of medicines have become increasingly complex. Since these treatments are based on the knowledge of normal biology, the concept of using biological agents or chemicals taken from biologic sources has become increasingly common. So biological methods led to the development of the modern vaccines that we already have. This gives us great hope for vaccines against COVID-19. The existing modern vaccines have done so much for human health with the eradication of smallpox and nearly the eradication of polio, to use some examples. This approach of using biological sources for making medicines is the field of biopharmaceuticals or biologics. A real breakthrough in biologics occurred later in the 20th century when the technology of recombinant DNA was developed. This has helped make synthetic human insulin, as an example, using biological rather than chemical methods, producing a great improvement in treatment for diabetes. Further refinement in recombinant DNA technology allowed many other types of important agents to be produced, such as types of growth hormones that may be or may not be at optimal levels in various conditions, or making custom-designed antibodies or monoclonal antibodies to work in important pathways to reverse illness, often seen in such conditions as rheumatoid arthritis. And these have been truly breakthrough approaches. And of course, special monoclonal antibodies have become routine in the treatment of lymphoma and in special types of breast cancer for several years. Newer pathways have been more recently discovered, including issues concerning the immune system, and biologics have been produced that are monoclonal antibodies directed at important mechanisms affecting many more cancers, such as lung cancer and melanoma, as just two examples, and others with some newer, very exciting progress. Supportive care in cancer, including the avoidance of infection and lessening of anemia, also involve the use of biopharmaceuticals, and these agents have been used for quite a few years now. So biologicals or biopharmaceuticals are a major, major part of modern medicine of modern cancer care, both in fighting many cancers directly and in supporting the patient and maintaining quality of life. Now, purely chemical drugs that are wholly manufactured or synthesized in the laboratory have a very clear structure. When someone invents such a chemical and it's shown to be safe and effective for treating a particular condition, the individual or company obtains a patent and the right to sell the agent. With the patent, that company has the exclusive right to produce and market that agent for a period of years. Other but different drugs could be made to treat the condi that condition, but only the patent holder can make that very specific drug typical of our chemical drugs. When the patent expires, since the structure is known, others can make copies of that drug, and that's what we call generics. Before selling the generic copies, a new company must, in the USA, pass many tests as determined by the FDA or by other regulators in other countries. But remember, we said that biologics are increasingly complicated both in their structure and in their production. They're not straightforward chemicals. Producing a highly complex protein or antibody by biologic means is quite different than synthesizing a small molecule chemical medicine. So this is how the concept of biosimilars or follow-on biologic agents came about. Once the original patent for a biologic agent expires, other companies may produce a biologic product that is nearly identical to the first agent. What is typically important is that the biosimilar performs the same function as the original agent when the agents are compared. Of course, this is a very arduous and detailed property, a process that in the FDA in the U.S. or Health Canada in that country or the EMA in Europe as examples have set forward. So biosimilars 
work in the same way as the original biologic medicine for the same indications. In cancer medicine, the initial example of this in the U.S. occurred a few years ago after the expiration of the patent of the very frequently used biologic filgrastim. Filgrastim functions to increase normal white blood cells to prevent infection. Another com company then introduced a biosimilar at that time called filgrastim SNDV. Of course, there are many other biologics used in other diseases and many biologics now used in cancer treatment and supportive care. Of course, this initial agent in oncology, the filgrastim biosimilar, was only the beginning. With many other biologics going off patent in the not-too-distant future, and for the large, for a large growth in the availability of biosimilars in the U.S. and in many other countries. I think the main advantage right now of biosimilars, when properly tested and approved, is to introduce competition into the practical aspects of cancer care. In my view, this has had two immediate positive consequences. One, this can lead to cost savings for all. And two, it can spur an even greater competitive spirit into creating increasingly better treatments. I'll be particularly interested to hear the updates and comments of my colleagues in the following presentations, with Dr. Jeffrey Crawford addressing us next. I'll now hand the program back to Dr. Carolyn Messner. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was really uh, an outstanding, it's really setting the stage for the whole program. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Crawford. Dr. Crawford is the Jeffrey Barth Geller Professor for Research in Cancer, Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine, co-leader solid tumor therapeutics program, principal investigator of NCTN LAPS grant, Duke Cancer Institute. And Dr. Crawford will be directing clinical trials, how biosimilars uh, research contributes to treatment options, the benefits of biosimilars, current use in the care of people living with cancer, key questions to ask your healthcare team about biosimilars, including your pharmacist, how your pharmacist may assist you in a timely refilling of your prescriptions, and current and future perspectives. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Crawford. Carolyn, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a tough act to follow Dr. Grala, but I'll, I'll do my best to fill in a few points here, and then we can have a, a joint discussion with the audience. Um, so to, to start with, you know, Dr. Grala has done a great job of distinguishing chemicals from biologics and generics from biosimilars. Um, I'm going to focus first just on how the development of biosimilars has really changed the whole paradigm of how we develop agents and how biosimilars are so different in their development process from what we call reference biologics or the originator molecules. So if you think about development as sort of a, a pyramid on its head, uh, so the, the point being down, that point is the molecular characterization of a new biologic. Uh, once it's identified and has um, uh, structure and activity identified in preclinical studies, um, and we know the target and some idea of what that biologic might do, uh, it undergoes further testing in the clinic. And so there are uh, traditionally phase one, phase two, phase three trials. And at each step, that pyramid broadens. So it takes more and more effort, more and more time to conduct those clinical trials to prove that that biologic is actually doing what we hope it will do uh, at every level. Uh, and that at uh, the phase three level, is shown to be superior to whatever the conventional therapy has been. And ultimately, uh, if all is done well, it gets an FDA approval and an individual indication, a certain disease type, for example. Um, and then there is post-marketing surveillance where additional work is done to show that that agent is performing uh, in clinical practice the way it did in the clinical trial. So that's an ongoing process and reporting back to the FDA. So at every step, more and more effort has to be achieved to show that that originator molecule is performing the way it should and that it's valid uh, and useful. Uh, if one wants then to study in a different disease, a different setting, then again one has to go through that clinical trial process. It may be you've already identified the dose and safety, but you haven't really proven 
that it works in gastric cancer the way it does in breast cancer, for example. So that would take other sets of studies. Um, so the difference in the biosimilar development is that the work is not at the clinical trial level uh, nearly as much, but it's at the very early molecular characterization. That means you're trying to show that that um, molecule you develop, that biosimilar, is in fact very similar to the originator molecule. And that's usually meaning that you have to show something called amino acid sequence, and you have to show a mechanism of action that's uh, identical to the originator molecule. Everything else is a little bit different because it's, uh, the manufacturing comes from living cells, uh, the protein structure, some inactive ingredients, all those things might be a little bit different in the biosimilar than it is in the originator uh, biologic. Uh, and so uh, one really has to be sure that you have that amino acid sequence and mechanism really nailed down at the, at the preclinical level. So a lot of work goes into that characterization, the preclinical work. And then, and then really uh, a lot of the clinical work turns into things like looking to see how that molecule circulates in the bloodstream. Is the um, level in the blood the same with the biosimilar as it was in the originator molecule? Uh, and if it is, there are also studies done to show that there's no immune reaction. So one thing we are concerned about with biologics is the potential to develop an antibody, something that would block the effectiveness of the agent, whether it's the originator molecule or a biosimilar. We have to look for immunogenicity, it's called, in all those settings. Uh, and all that work is done really very early on. Some of it's clinical, but a lot of it is preclinical. Uh, and ultimately, the clinical testing could range from a single study compared to the biologic, uh, the originator molecule, or sometimes even um, a smaller study that could be done uh, just in normal volunteers in some settings, and others it has to be done in, in patient populations. Uh, and then the really big leap, so you've, you've gone from a very broad pyramid at the bottom to less and less um, activity as you go further along. You're investing a lot less money in the clinical trial end of this, which is where most of the expenses come for pharmaceutical companies. And what you're relying on is that the biosimilar is really very similar to the originator molecule. And if you've proven that, then you can really adopt all the work that was done for the biosimilar, uh, meaning you can extrapolate. You can say, we've done this to prove that we are biosimilar to the originator molecule, therefore uh, we can have the same indications across multiple disease types. Uh, as one might have uh, without doing all of the individual clinical trials. So that's really where the, the savings comes in. Again, post-marketing surveillance is very important, um, but it's really this paradigm shift in how drugs are developed that allow the cost savings to occur in, in this development. And those cost savings then can get passed on to the patients and the payers and the health system so that we can kind of bend the curve of cost that we're currently experiencing in oncology. So uh, with that, the other part of this I think that's been very interesting to me is that because we're doing very small but very uh, defined clinical trials, we need to, to develop usually a surrogate for endpoints. So with the example of the filgraftum that Dr. Grala mentioned, we can use the neutrophil profile, the white blood count response. Um, to tell us how well that's working compared to the biologic, the original biologic, and that, that was a very effective way to show comparability. With the therapeutic agents, the ones that target um, uh, Herceptin, for example, the HER2 uh, receptor on breast cancer, one can look at response rate. One can actually look at the response of the tumor to that agent in combination with chemotherapy versus the uh, the originator molecule. And what that allows us to do is to use a very sensitive endpoint of how the tumor responds to compare uh, the originator molecule to the biosimilar. So I think it's, it's changed the way we've looked at trials. We don't look at long-term survival or other outco outcomes because those have already been established with the originator molecule. So it has sped up the process. And in that speeding up of the process uh, is the cost savings, as I mentioned. Um, and what are the benefits then in addition to cost savings? Well, I think the, the drugs will be more available. If the biosimilars are less expensive, that's going to drive down the 
cost overall to the payer, to the hospital, to the practice, to the physicians, and, and to the patients. And when that's been studied, uh, as it was with the first GCSF, it looked like just the introduction of that one drug one might save almost $250 million in five years by incorporating that over the originator molecule. Um, and that cost savings, some of that is out-of-pocket cost savings to the patient, but a lot of it is savings to Medicare and to commercial insurance, which ultimately saves all of us money and reduces healthcare costs. For patients um, currently living with cancer who are uh, potentially going to receive a biosimilar. The ones that are most in use right now are the biosimilars for the hematopoietic growth factors, the white blood cell uh, and red blood cell growth factors that are used to help patients recover faster in terms of their white blood count post-chemotherapy or if they have severe anemia to recover faster from that. And that's become uh, an increasingly important uh, approach to treatment in the current age of COVID-19. The guidelines committees have suggested that we use these agents in general more widely um, than we might have earlier so that less patients are at risk for developing an infection and ending up in the hospital. So I think the biosimilars as, long, as well as the reference products uh, will see wider use particularly over the next year. Now the other area that's really just starting in the last year have been the therapeutic agents. These are agents um, like biosimilars to bevacizumab or avastin. That's a uh, molecule that affects blood vessel growth and seems to help uh, improve outcomes for patients with certain types of cancer. There's also uh, biosimilars to Herceptin, which uh, I've mentioned is very important in breast cancer patients. And then uh, third, Rituxan is another bio, biologic agent, which now has biosimilars available, very important to treat lymphoma. So we're going to see those agents, particularly in, in this year and beyond, um, replacing some of the, the uh, earlier biologic agents. And again, that competition uh, among companies will lower the prices and, and those healthcare costs we've uh, passed on to all of us, hopefully. Now, I think uh, in terms of the healthcare team, this is such a rapidly changing uh, environment. Uh, sometimes these changes are made at a pharmacy level. Sometimes they're, they're made at a payer level. The payer decides that which, which one of these agents they're going to endorse. Um, so we often don't know for sure. So that, uh, as a prescriber, which agent will be received. So we can find that out. And I think your pharmacist will know that. So I think that's something you discuss both with your provider and your pharmacist, am I getting the originator molecule, am I getting a biosimilar? I think regardless, uh, while it's taken some frame shift in thinking, I think most of us in the field that have worked with these agents feel totally comfortable that the biosimilar will have the same efficacy and safety as the originator molecule. Just as we're very comfortable with generics, I think we've grown to be comfortable with this. So I don't think it's in the long run will matter, but clearly you, you want to be informed and know what you're receiving. And then I think the current and, and future perspectives for all this are that I think the way in which uh, pharma has embraced this area of uh, biologics and biosimilars will only lead to more advances in the future. In addition to the cost savings with all these companies ramping up, their production of biologics, I think we'll see new biologics as well as more biosimilars in the future, and that can only lead to further improvement in cancer care. So I'll stop there, Carolyn, and be happy to take any questions. Uh, that was outstanding, Dr. Crawford, really, um, and, and, and so very informative for everybody in terms of the role of biosimilars and really um, just both future what they hold for everybody, so it's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much. We're going to take questions in a minute. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services and programs. You're aware of them. I'm Carolyn Metzner. I'm an oncology social worker. I'm director of education and training with Cancer Care. And uh, Cancer Care does offer uh, free national programs and services. And what they consist of, one of the main ways people contact us is through our Hope Line um, and, and also um, on our website as well. 
and uh, I'll make contacts on our website as well. Um, we offer practical and financial assistance. So the financial assistance is restricted to people in the U.S. All of our other services are available to anyone anywhere in the world. And if we don't have the particular resource you're looking for, we will we definitely will be able to refer you um, collegial to other organizations that can really be able to assist you and actually work with you until you get that problem solved. We very and careful about that. We also offer support, and um, that support means that you have a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns and questions, and and that is incredibly important to many people who call us. Particularly, we have to say we've had an increase in people calling us just because of our environment right now, both coping with cancer and also just the concerns about COVID-19. So, and it is really good to be able to talk with someone um, at the end of the line, pick up the phone and talk to you about your concerns, and I think that's been very helpful to people. Um, and so uh, those give you a snapshot of some of our services, and uh, I'm happy to take questions about that during a Q&A, but those are primarily the services you can access from Cancer Care. Of course, we have these education workshops, and we do offer publications and have a website full of information as well. Now, with that being said, I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of the speakers on board and to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And so, Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask the Question. Again, to ask a question at this time, please press star 1. So the questions are online uh, participants. Um, and this would be for um, Dr. Grava. How does FDA approval of biosimilars differ from other drugs, if at all? Well, it really does differ because uh, for other drugs that are chemicals, uh, the, the structure can be identical. And Dr. Crawford was mentioning that the FDA looks at the structure of biosimilars that do not, therefore, have the identical structure. So, uh, therefore, they're not approving just a copy of, uh, of a chemical the way the older medicines are. They're approving a drug, but they want to know about it biologically, but then they want to know in clinical trials that it performs the same function. And so the process is really quite different and very sophisticated since they're approving a drug that's similar but not identical because the biologicals are so complex in their structure that uh, they simply need to produce the same effect but not look the same. Now, the chemical medicines, they do various bioequivalent studies for the chemical medicines. They do various equivalent studies, but they do the pharmacology showing that the drug is handled by the body in the same way. That's not exactly so for the biosimilars. Um, it's their effect and, and, of course, their safety as well. So it's really, it has taken the FDA, I think it's fair to say, many years to come to grips with how to look at these drugs that are biological and similar but not identical. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and um, there's a question from Dr. Crawford. Um, are there any other downsides to biosimilars? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't think anyone's asked me that. Um, well, so I think um, I think there are some people that think that if um, if the whole attention of the pharmaceutical industry moves from new biologic to making copies of old biologics, the biosimilars, that we're going to lose progress in the war against cancer and other diseases. But I don't think this is an either-or situation. I think it's, it's additive. As I, was, as I was finishing, I was saying it's brought more companies into this whole field of biologics that might not have been before. So now they have the um, know-how and methods to not only make biosimilars to originator molecules or reference products, but they can make new biologics, new immune checkpoint inhibitors and new other uh, proteins that may be very helpful. So. I don't see a downside. Um, I think that, um, well, let me say, I don't see a downside as long as things are done the way they should be. 
post-marketing surveillance is very important for uh, biosimilars as well as original biologics because these agents in the originator molecules change over time. And there's new batches need to be made, new cell lines are developed, and so there's always been this need to continue to have rigor around the manufacturing process and then to ultimately follow this out into uh, the community to make sure that we aren't seeing adverse effects, meaning antibodies developing against the biologic. And that has happened, not with biosimilars, but prior to biosimilars, there were manufacturing issues with some red cell uh, agents that led to actually the reverse effect of, the, of causing anemia uh, because they block the effect of what's called erythropoietin. So we always have to be knowledgeable about biologics in general that they can have adverse effects that weren't intended if they're not uh, made correctly or if the body begins to recognize them as a foreign product. So that's, that's a risk, but it's a risk with biologics as well as biosimilars. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. And we have a, thank you for that. And we have a question from one of our um, telephone participants. Thank you. Norma? Yes, your line is open. Yes, Doctor, thank you. Um, I'm not sure uh, this question can be answered, but I'm going through a biopsy at this point because I had a thyroid cancer, and it's gone into my lungs now at this point. So I was just wondering, uh, could the, during the process of a biopsy, could the, uh, the cells be transmitted to other parts of the lung in the event that they do uh, put the needle in and take it out? So I'll, I'll start with that one then. Thank uh, you. Thanks, Dr. Bella. Thank you. Carolyn. Good question. Yes, yes, please. Thank you. Right. So, um, you know, first of all, thyroid cancer very often does go to the lung. I don't know uh, why your doctors are doing the biopsy. Uh, it sounds like it's a good idea. I don't know precisely why, but sometimes the reason for doing the biopsy is not is well, often it is to prove that indeed it's thyroid cancer or could it be another cancer even though it's most likely to be the thyroid cancer. So I don't really know and, and you know, why that reason is, but a biopsy can be very valuable. Fortunately, with most cancers, including thyroid cancer, the risk of spread through a biopsy is infinitesimally small, so I wouldn't be too concerned about it about that aspect, and the knowledge that's gained by being sure that your doctors are treating what they think they are, uh, and also these days when we get a biopsy, depending on the type of cancer a person has, we get so much more information, including genetic information, all of which can help guide uh, care. So we don't really know for your individual case, but... Um, uh, I'm sure that both Dr. Crawford and I recommend biopsies very frequently, and, uh, um, you know, this is uh, something that is very commonly done, but the risk of spread during a biopsy is extraordinarily low. The, the chance of benefit is extremely high. Excellent. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. And, you know, please take that information back to your healthcare team, but that's really very helpful. And thank you, Dr. Dr. Um, Grawler, for that uh, uh, response to this, this question, really helpful. Um, so this is, uh, again, these are, we're getting interesting questions. Um, this has been happening all week, honestly. Um, so I, I see a trend here, but in any case, um, for, um, for Dr. Crawford, can't you discuss interchangeability with regards to biosimilars? Okay, well, here's, here's someone that's uh, an advanced student of biosimilars. Yeah, I didn't bring, I didn't bring, I didn't bring this up, but uh, um, so, so what tended to happen is these agents have come on the market. Um, we are substituting them, meaning uh, our pharmacy carried one type of filgrassum, and then a biosimilar came on, and now we have another one. Um, different payers have decided that this is going to be, they're going to, endorse a certain biosimilar Herceptin, one of these therapeutic antibodies for breast cancer. Uh, and so what happens is the agents that were being given to patients are now substituted with a biosimilar. Uh, we believe that that is safe based on all the data that we have, 
but the FDA has uh, recently come out with something called interchangeability, uh, and that's a designation that none of the biosimilars ha have right now. And what that is saying is that you can go from one biosimilar to a biologic to another biosimilar and back to the biologic, and they're clearly interchangeable. To prove that takes a pretty complicated uh, clinical trial pathway. And none, well, first, most of the biologic biosimilars we have now uh, were developed before that ruling uh, was developed by the FDA. Uh, and so none of them currently available have that label. But in, in fact, what's happening in clinical practice is this interchange between the reference product and the biosimilar, sometimes in the same patient, sometimes just moving from one patient to the next as things change. Uh, again, I, I feel like um, the interchangeability designation is probably not going to be uh, used very often because I think most biosimilar development plans haven't included it, and I think in the market, uh, the reality is the cost seems to drive which agent is used more than the other, and then that helps lead to lower prices for the reference product as well as the biosimilar. So I think the economics of the practice are going to make the difference. And as long as we've done our, our diligence in the development of biosimilars to show that they are, in fact, interchangeable at the at really the characterization level, then I think the downstream effects of those will be realized. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the question and thanks for the wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, and um, another online question from Dr. Glauer. Are biosimilars less effective than original drugs since they cost less? Well, uh, in fact, uh, we believe that biosimilars are not less effective. So um, that's sort of, therefore, the best of both worlds, drugs that work well and uh, cost less. So we don't want to take any risks on one's good cancer care by uh, using a less expensive drug. Um, I think it's important to realize that uh, most biosimilars are not inexpensive, but they're less expensive than the originator drug and uh, uh, would not be approved unless they are felt to be of very similar uh, benefit to the patient. Really good questions, I must say. Uh, um, uh, it's, um, and now for Dr. Crawford, how is safety monitored after biosimilar approval? Um, okay, so I was just up on Dr. Rowell's comment. I, I think that uh, um, there's a, a general feeling that when generics first became available, well, they're just a, a cheaper form of of a heart medicine or something, and maybe it's not going to work as well. But, but we know that's not the case as long as manufacturing processes have produced the same product. And, and that, that's sort of the same story here. This kind of, I think most physicians, frankly, when these agents first came out, had some skepticism. They didn't see the same amount of clinical trial data uh, to support it. But uh, once you embrace this idea of, ex of extrapolation, that really once you proven the biosimilar to meet the criteria necessary to be called a biosimilar, then you can sort of um, co-opt or uh, utilize all of the data that exists for that reference product and apply it to the new agent. So we expect the very same safety, the very same efficacy from any of the biosimilars we do from the, from the reference product. Now, um, in, in terms of how that safety gets looked at post-approval, it's really the same for biologics and for biosimilars, the reference product and the others. And that is ongoing post-marketing surveillance. So patients are looked at for outcomes. They're looked at for developing any antibodies that might uh, develop. Um, and so far, that's not happened, which is good. So there haven't been any safety signals from any of the biosimilars yet produced. Uh, but that's an ongoing process that will happen for both. Because as I mentioned, just as manufacturing processes change over time for biosimilars, that happens with the reference products. So there's been a long history of having to do that post-marketing evaluation that goes back to the originator of molecules. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and this question I'll direct it to Dr. Grala to begin with. One question. Um, so how long have biosimilars been on the market, and have there been long-term studies on how well they work as opposed to original drugs? 
Well, it's several years now that uh, biosimilars have been on the market and available, maybe a little longer in Europe than uh, in the U.S. I can't tell you the exact number of patients that have been treated with biosimilars, but I would expect the number flirts with a million or more um, uh, in all countries uh, over this time. So these uh, have been there. As Dr. Crawford has said, over this time there have not been safety signals. And uh, to answer the prior question, and uh, the more physicians have gotten to use them, uh, the more pleased they are uh, with them. Uh, now, there have been many studies that have been published for many of these agents uh, that have been available that look at uh, longer-term effects, and uh, uh, although many of these agents don't have, uh, you know, they they are there to stimulate the bone marrow for a short period of time, and uh, uh, the studies that have been done uh, uh, of the agents that we have available, to the best of my knowledge, uh, have not uh, indicated any efficacy or safety signals uh, as a general rule looking at uh, lots and lots of studies. Well, yeah, I just follow on to that just to say um, that you know, we've been in the business, I guess, since 2015 or so with the with the supportive care agents, the ones that help the white count and things. And there you get a very quick readout because when you give uh, a white cell growth factor, you see the white cells go up and you see them recover after chemotherapy. And so if there was an issue, uh, that, uh, we would know that uh, because they've been out there for several years and we're not seeing that, that effect and patients get treated multiple times with it. So we're not seeing reports of um, no effectiveness or some safety signal from those factors. The therapeutic agents are newer to us, although they've been in Europe for several years. And, and there again, so far we haven't seen uh, signs of signals, but, but there the issue is more the therapy for the patient is the patient, uh, the patient relapses uh, in the, from the cancer treatment they were on with an originator molecule or a biosimilar would have been any different the other way around. And we don't have any data to suggest that would be the case, but that's something we'll continue to follow in these post-marketing surveillance studies. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to wonderful questions, but we have wonderful speakers to address them. So this is such a wonderful opportunity here. And um, we now have a question from one of our telephone participants, um, Norma. Joyce F. The line is open. Um, yes, I have a question about um, how the biosimilars are administered. Are they always administered in the same fashion as the original? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that is correct, that they have the same frequency and uh, schedules. Uh, but I haven't looked at that uh, closely. Uh, Dr. Crawford? Yeah, I think they're really meant to mimic the originator molecule of the reference product. So, yeah, the same um, route of administration would be used. So some of, these, some of the things we're talking about, some of these biologics are given subcutaneously, some are given intravenously, uh, some of the antibodies are intravenous, and some of the, what we call the growth factors are often subcutaneous, the same route is used. And so we, we also need to remember that most of these biologicals are, are essentially, many of them, most of them are proteins that would be digested if taken orally. So uh, it makes good sense to have these given by injection. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. And um, so we have a question from our online participants um, and um, Dr. Grauer. Um, so I have to stop taking the original drug for a certain period of time before taking a biosimilar? Well, I, I wouldn't think so. I think you would – if <clears throat> so I think for the most part, people are started on – whatever drug, be it the biosimilar or the originator molecule. And if things are going well, I think most of the time your doctor would continue you on that same drug. But if there is a reason to change to the biosimilar or whatever, I think it would be on the same schedule uh, as it would be. I don't think there would be a clearing. But I don't think that too many physicians... Uh, look to biosimilars to change their person, their patient, from uh, what they were on before. Usually it's in starting a new patient. 
but I think it would continue if it did on the same schedule as before. Right, and I think implied in that might be you don't need to start on the original uh, reference product first to quote show it works and then switch over. I mean, we think that, uh, that you could start with either, and it really will depend on what's available, what your insurance carrier is uh, endorsing, and, and what the cost is. And, and again, I think uh, maybe we didn't mention this enough, but it would be important to uh, find out from your pharmacist what the out-of-pocket costs will be for whatever agent you're on. And we believe that the out-of-pocket costs will be less for the biosimilar than it will be uh, for the reference product. So that's a really important point, then. Thank you. That's excellent. Um, and a question for Dr. Crawford. Is there a difference between the way the EU and FDA test biosimilars? Uh, the, the regulatory requirements are different. Um, I don't know all the fine points of it. I think the, uh, the EMA had a more direct uh, way of doing this uh, with less barriers early on. But once the, once the U.S. developed their guidelines, I think they were just a little later coming to the table on this. Uh, I think the process is pretty similar um, in terms of what the requirements are. The things I talked about in terms of the molecular identification and study in the lab and all that, all those things are, are quite similar. Um, and focusing on the preclinical development and very small clinical trials to validate that those results are the same in both countries. Very confident. And I, I think it's, it's uh, reasonable to understand that, indeed, the, uh, these major regulatory agencies do talk to each other. Good point. Excellent. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, So this is an interesting question as well, uh, Dr. Um, Grawa. What is extrapolation, and how does it relate to biosimilars? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> uh, to extrapolate is to take data, whatever it is, and use it to project other results. So depending on your confidence, uh, in, a, in a biosimilar uh, of how similar its effect is um, then, uh, and how confident you are of the quality of that biosimilar, then you could extrapolate the results you have to believe that they will duplicate those results of the originator molecule. Yeah, I, I, made, I made that, but I just because uh, I was trying to explain that earlier, which I obviously didn't totally master. Because uh, it is a little complicated, but I think uh, an example might help. So, um, as I was mentioning, once you've gotten to the point of the FDA being satisfied that your biosimilar meets all status of biosimilar, then they offer an approval with the same breadth of approval that happens to the reference product. So, saying that another way, you might the reference product might have indications across five different diseases, and they've done detailed studies on all of them. But the the uh, biosimilar may have only done one study. But it's not the number of studies; it's really the basic bio, biology and understanding that the molecule is the same that allows them to kind of adapt or extrapolate all those indications. One example would be. There's a red cell growth factor that's approved for patients with cancer-related anemia, but the trial that was done for the biosimilar was done in patients with anemia from dialysis, from kidney dialysis. So they extrapolate, but the mechanism is the same, all the work is the same, so they extrapolate to cancer from kidney disease. That is a little foreign concept for many of us, but as you begin to work in this field, you get more comfortable with it. And I think the reason they felt that was uh, the mechanism by how that drug can stimulate the bone marrow is similar in kidney disease and in cancer, although some of the forces uh, that are uh, that the patient experiences are rather different. Is, is that fair, uh, Dr. Crawford? Yes, yeah. Uh, and, and, again, it's only because 
the originator molecule was studied in great detail, both in kidney disease and in cancer, that they could extrapolate to that database to say, yeah, we can, we can use it in both settings. Fascinating. These are really amazing questions, and your response to them is really very helpful. Um, so here's another question of Dr. Crossett. Are biosimilars considered experimental at this stage? No. No, they're not. I mean, I think that there's a well, uh, well-documented pathway for approval for these agents, um, and I think the, the biosimilar process really around the world is uh, uh, increasingly sophisticated and and very uh, tightly regulated. So uh, once the biosimilar meets FDA approval, it's, it's no longer considered experimental. And uh, for Dr. Crowell, I think this has been addressed, but and it's probably worth you to go over again. Do biosimilars work as well as generics? Uh, uh, well, not as generics. Do they work as well, well as the as originator drug? Okay, so I guess I'll answer two questions there, I guess. Uh, uh, um, yes, they're felt to work as well as, as originator drugs, and if we use the term generic, we're, of course, referring to chemicals where we uh, have reason to believe that the uh, uh, generic works as well as the originator chemical. So the answer is yes, uh, biologics work as well as the originator, and uh, uh, and, and uh, the generics work as well as the original chemical. Now, in some chemicals, um, such as thyroid uh, hormone, etc., the biologic activity, uh, the potency may be ever so slightly different. So sometimes with generic drugs, some generic drugs, it's good to stick with the same generic drug if you can, uh, so continuing to get the same generic, because in some hormonal type medicines there are slight differences, but, uh, but the, so the potency can be ever so slightly different, but uh, the effect is the same provided one sticks with the same drug. But in general, generics uh, uh, work very well, and all of us use them uh, all the time in cancer treatment as well as general medicine compared with the original chemicals, and biosimilars are felt to work the same as the originator compound. Excellent. And um, for Dr. Crawford, how can healthcare professionals ensure that a biosimilar will be safe and work effectively for a patient? Like almost a course, it's a seem like to me, but you could say something about this time to yeah, help. Yeah, you know, I think. Well, I think one is that uh, a big, big thing is education. So educating um, ourselves as physicians about this this process, getting a comfort level with the data. Uh, I think that uh, as physicians, we're usually more comfortable uh, analyzing clinical trial results than we are uh, NMR or some basic protein chemistry uh, stuff that has to get done for biosimilars, but uh, understanding at least that that's been done and, and understanding the depth at which uh, the FDA and other regulatory agencies look over that data, I think provides a lot of confidence uh, with, with uh, practice and with your patients. And for patients, it's the same thing. I think understanding this and not maybe being afraid of biosimilars or afraid of these agents, because I think they do offer great benefit and, and cost savings, and ultimately, um, to sustain cancer care going forward, we have to have directions like this to, uh, to bend the cost curve. Excellent. And question for Dr. Grala. Do clinical trials for biosimilars differ from usual trials? Well, uh, the whole development of biosimilars is a bit different than uh, for some other clinical trials, but uh, there are ways that the agencies that we've talked about, the FDA and the EMA, have uh, have uh, recommended for clinical trials that they want to see. And so for those types of drugs, those trials uh, are, are there uh, entirely. Dr. Crawford uh, mentioned this a little bit in the development of these, of these agents. And uh, so, uh, yes, there are some differences, but uh, there is a very structured 
way that these uh, drugs are studied and looked at before they are approved as being safe and effective. And I think to add into the conversation about generics and biosimilars, most physicians that I know, and now that these drugs have been available for many years, most physicians I know for themselves and their family would easily take generic drugs and would easily take biosimilars. So that's very helpful to hear. That's a, a nice takeaway for everybody on the call um, to think about that. That's um, very, it's, it's very um, reassuring for everybody, I think. So that's incredibly important, particularly since um, for many of the questions that this is a concept that people may not be as familiar with, so that's uh, really helpful. And I guess in the closing few minutes we have Dr. Grawler and Dr. Crawford, is there any takeaway that you particularly want people to leave this call with um, as a kind of a, um, just a, we've talked about a lot of things, a lot of good questions, you've answered them terrifically, any, anything that you want to, uh, either one of you want to add that people could just leave today with? Well, I would say that uh, I'd like to thank you guys for calling in. I think uh, awareness is very important in cancer care and advocacy, and I think uh, uh, the field of biosimilars really has been an important part of the development of cancer therapeutics and supportive care over the last five years and will only become more so going forward. And it's not just cancer. It's all fields of medicine where biologics are used, certainly in the arthritis medicines and other fields. We're seeing more and more biologics and biosimilars develop there. So uh, being aware of, of what's happening in the field and being comfortable with that is important. As uh, Dr. Rao was mentioning, many of the chemotherapy drugs we use are generics now, and we don't give it a second thought. And I think that's where we'll be heading uh, with the biosimilar process in the years ahead. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Grawler, do you? So uh, my final comment, uh, well, first of all, what wonderful questions from the uh, audience. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, we really appreciate them. And uh, uh, I would just, and I find that uh, all of these biologics that we're talking about are very, very exciting drugs. And uh, it's wonderful that the process for making these biosimilars has uh, come about. And my final word is uh, wherever from the many international and national places uh, people are listening from. Uh, unfortunately, this pandemic is still upon us. We're all looking forward to the development of a useful vaccine, which hopefully won't be too long. But please be vigilant. Please keep your guard up and uh, be very careful because uh, better days are ahead, but we want to keep uh, very safe. So uh, I really appreciate the ability to talk to you about biosimilars and the others, but uh, as Dr. Crawford and I are practicing medical oncology during this time, things have, have changed. We've adapted, but we, we need to have everybody continue to be careful and follow the advice of your oncology team. Excellent. That's so important for everyone to be aware of. That's true. We're living in a, in a context of the world right now that's very, very important. So thank you so much. Um, I want to thank our speakers. You've just been phenomenal. Um, this has been, we have done these programs before, but this particular program was particularly phenomenal, I must say. Um, and uh, both our speakers were wonderful, and your questions were amazing, I have to say. And the interchange between our speakers, the collegial nature of this entire call between the participants and the speakers was amazing. So thank you. I want to thank you. And I, um, I know that there are many more questions in queue. We probably could continue this afternoon, but we did say this would be an hour program. And so that I, um, for any of you who asked a question or still have a question or heard a question and actually think of some other question, we do want you to take it back to treating healthcare team. Of course, they know everything about you, and, and they um, actually could also help to um, address your questions as well. But we also do know that you all like to go to, uh, we would like to think, credible resources to get your information. And by credible, I mean uh, centers um, that are, our speakers are from really uh, NCI designated centers of excellence. Um, and I would suggest the National Cancer Institute as a resource. And you're going to get an evaluation um, of today's program probably on Monday. And that evaluation will include, of course, an evaluation. We love to get your feedback. But it will also include uh, resources for you, credible resources for you to use in getting your information. We prefer you don't get it off of a blog or someone just 
hosting something, we would really like you to go to credible resources like the National Cancer Institute. They have a website. They have a call-in number as well. They have a live chat feature. Um, we would also like you to think of going to a number of other, of course, the other organizations um, that we will be recommending for you um, when you get the um, uh, your evaluation. Um, also, many of them are listed as the collaborating organizations on today's program. All of them have very reputable information on their sites for you as well. Also, for those of you who wish to pursue uh, services from Cancer Care, you can either call our Hopeline or visit our website, and um, we would be happy to have you um, talk with one of our oncology social workers about any concerns, questions, anything that we might be able to help you with. So with that being said, I want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been really an amazing group. This has been an amazing call, and I, uh, I know I keep using that word, but it, it has been. We're really quite struck by the sophistication of your questions and also by uh, our wonderful speakers. And um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. And also, um, I know that in this time of, of uh, social isolation that people may feel more so because of the COVID-19, um, that people often feel very much alone. And, and that's a normal feeling to have, of course, feeling alone uh, um, and living with cancer and also just with all that's going around you at this time. However, we do want you to know you're part of a community of a large number of support organizations out there and your healthcare team that are there for you. So please do recognize that when you're feeling alone and know that you can pick up the phone or, 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 or um, send an email to them and get some support for you. That's really important. So I want to thank you all and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.